Harlem, northern fringe of New York's Manhattan, is accustomed to strange sensations. But a new kind of sensation to rhythmic racy Harlem is a religious phenomenon called Father Divine, whose presence pervades all Harlem. All manner of businesses pop up throughout the district, all offering life's necessities at incredibly cheap prices. To his eager followers, Father Divine is God on earth, and his headquarters shrill with the worship of his flock. No collections are taken, yet the Father's income is as large as it is mysterious. For as you know, those who know of me, I have not as yet taken up a collection. I have not as yet asked anybody for a dime. It's wonderful. And they wonder how can it be done. to nwczradio.com channel one's down the rabbit hole it's good to have you along it's a brand new episode and we are back together i'm big d and i'm brandon and you are who you are and you're listening and we appreciate that very very much we got some great emails again this week always love to hear from our listeners some really smart people out there sending us all kind of info and links and having great discussions so if you want to be a part of that just email us at downtherh at protonmail.com, downtherh at protonmail.com. And, of course, thanks to all the platforms that carry us. We couldn't do it without them, obviously. And yeah. on a side note, we haven't talked about it in a while. I have noticed that the sensors are starting to ramp up, and it's probably because we're getting close to election and we're getting close to what they're calling covid and vaccine season and so all of a sudden the sensors are out again and they're banning podcasts and disappearing them if we should disappear and you would like to continue to hear the show just email us down the rh at protonmail.com say put me on the list we will not spam you we don't send out any kind of weekly anything or sell your email all that will happen is should we disappear from the platforms We'll just email you our show. That's it. Yep. Easy peasy. One of the topics that we've talked about here recently was Jim Jones. And a lot of people like those episodes. We did a two-parter because we talked about the official story and then we talked about all the crazy stuff around Jim Jones. And one of the characters in the story is somebody that has been truly erased from history. Yes. You do not hear about this person hardly ever at all. In the Jim Jones quote movie, it's just a little side character. I think there's just maybe a conversation that is shown. But in everything I did and read about it, about Jim Jones, he was a blip. It was just like, oh, yeah, there was this guy. <laughs> and that was it. And like, oh, Jim met him once. Right. And we're going to get into all of that, which is because that is not true. Yeah, there's a lot more than that. But he's he's definitely, I mean, once you like really look into him, it's like, this is a huge character. How is he somebody that everyone's just like, yeah, let's not talk about him. 
Well, I think you're going to find out why. Oh yeah, through the through this podcast, and there is a really decent documentary. I watched it on YouTube, but I believe the original place it was broadcast was on the Stars Network, S T A R Z. But you can find it if you just type in because the person we're talking about is Father Divine. You just type in Father Divine documentary. I think it's an hour and a half. It's well worth the watch because it's <laughs> it will show you just the bizarreness of this character. And at the same time, he was sort of hailed as a hero for a lot of people yeah. in certain circumstances. And if, I know that's not making sense, but we will try to make it all come into focus through this episode because this is an individual who not only inspired Jim Jones, Jim Jones once claimed to be the reincarnation of this person, Father Divine. Yes. And there's a lot of people who have taken what Father Divine did, mimicked it, copied it, and created cults of their own. Yeah. I've read several things that at the peak of this, there were two to three million people around the world who were wrapped up in this. I find that hard to believe. I think maybe two to three million people heard about it and were maybe like intrigued by it. But I think his actual hardcore followers and this is no small feat. They were in the they were like in the tens to maybe fifty thousand. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, and he's it's one of those things. It's kind of like, you know, we mentioned a little bit when we did Jim Jones, where if you take the last like ten years of Jim Jones and take get rid of it, you could almost say that he was like, you know, a he did good. Halfway decent person. Like halfway decent person. He did good. He really helped with desegregation, everything like that, did a lot of things towards that. But then there's Guyana and everything goes bad. But up until that point, he'd done a lot. And a lot of that he learned from Father Divine because that's what he did. But I think as we go through the episode, people are going to figure out that one of the reasons why he's kind of been blooped out of, you know, existence um, is because once you start looking at his reasoning, and his motivation, it's not so good. Exactly. So let's, as we normally do, start at the beginning. And there's a lot of controversy right there. Where yeah. did this guy come from? His name is officially the Reverend Major Jealous Divine. And everybody just called him Father Divine. That's the it's in the official records. The his followers petitioned the United States government to make that his absolute official name because there is a lot of controversy as to where he even started as started in life, who his parents were. Some people claim it was he was the from down in, I think it was Georgia, that his real name is George Baker. That seems to be the consensus, is that his actual yeah. true name was George Baker. And he was from, what, Rockville, Maryland in 1876. That's the That's second one story. Concession. Yeah. Yeah, so either, okay, so either he was from Henderson, North Carolina, and there are photos of him as a young child sitting on the porch of like this old sharecropper's house with a bunch of his siblings. Mm -hmm. But once this guy, father, we'll just call him Father Divine, once he left, he had nothing to do with, or nor did he talk about or associate with or even have any, anything to do with his family, period. Because what a lot of people don't think about, too, because we forget about the timing, really, his parents were freed slaves. That is... At least that's one of the... Pretty thoughts. well believed, yes. Yeah, though, his parents were free, freed slaves. So, I mean, people forget how, how close in time that really is. It's only two generations away. Three generations, really. But, I mean, his yeah, his family was freed slaves, and that he that's why there's no record of his birth. There's no record of anything else. But also, he never... When he, any time, 
gave his real name. No. People believe he was born in 1876. That sort of seems to be where people have pinned that. But in 1936, a lady named Eliza Mayfield claimed to be Father Divine's mother, and she stated that his real name was Frederick Edwards from Hendersonville, North Carolina, and that he had abandoned a wife and five children, but she offered no proof and claimed to not remember his father's name. And when he was asked about this, when Father Divine was asked about this, he would always say, God has no mother. Because here's the thing. Father Divine claimed to be God. Yes. The God. Which he, but he stole that from, oh, what was the guy? I, that's the hard part. There's a lot of things I had it here a minute ago that talked about his youth. He went over. Oh, followed around another preacher charles fillmore there you go yes and he claimed to be god and that's where he divine learned it so charles fillmore considered himself yes god and a prophet and the reincarnation or not even the reincarnation just the incarnation like god just showed up again in flesh and he was the force behind this thing called the new thought movement Mm-hmm. And the New Thought Movement still goes today. It just doesn't have that name. It's morphed into lots of different things. The New Thought Movement, this was this original, at the time, original idea, which I would say it wasn't original at all, but it was the idea that you could think things into existence. So you think positive, you think wealth, you think material things, and then it happens. And as long as you don't dwell on the negative, and as long as you don't, question your thoughts you just you have to like focus like a laser beam on these positive things and these things of you know, wealth and whatever that they would materialize mm-hmm. this Fillmore guy he was huge on the west coast he had followers and i guess churches or centers scattered across the u.s and on the east coast and yes so father divine isn't that the same thought of process of the book, The Secret, that everyone was all big into like 15, 20 years ago? It, it reappears over yeah. and over and over again. That positive thoughts will get you what you need. Just- yeah. In fact, I just saw something. There's a new trend going around on TikTok that I became aware of the other day. That's this very same thing. It's you just think things and you think positive and you think about them and then you meditate on them uh, and then they just happen. It's nothing new. It's been going on. Yeah since probably the dawn of time i have a way that that happens um you think things you think positively and then you get off your ass and you work for them well i mean this is how popular it was you know the song accentuate the positive you've got to accentuate the positive that one it's done by johnny mercer well johnny mercer wrote that after going to several father divine sermons yeah and as we get into the story when Father Divine was in Harlem, in Philadelphia, all in these, I'll just call it, they were basically the African-American sections of these towns and these big cities, and he was doing his ministry and his buffets and all the stuff that he was doing. He influenced a lot of musicians because he loved to have jazz and music playing at his events all the time. Yeah. George Clinton, if you go, if you look at some of the Parliament early Parliament albums, Father Divine is listed in the liner notes. He had a big influence on early black jazz musicians and gave gave them space to play and fed them and housed them or whatever. The weird thing is, what I think is weird, is that after he sort of followed this Fillmore around, he decided to become a preacher, which was... (laughs) Like, so he started going to like different Baptist churches, primarily Baptist churches, African-American Baptist churches. He would guest speak and he was working at this cadence that he had. And if you've ever heard a fiery fire and brimstone, very animated Baptist preacher, or Jim Jones, listen to some of Jim Jones' sermons because he took a lot of his cadence. Father Divine sort of invented that. Yeah. 
And, and there, there's a lot of people that I, who saw Jim Jones later who basically said that he was, you know, he, he followed a lot of what Father Divine did. Father Divine understood that if you had the right kind of music and you had the right kind of consistent, very well-crafted and narrowly focused message that you said over and over and over again, but you did it in these this cadence and an emotional, eliciting an emotional response that it was working. And so he stuck with it. The problem Which is very true. I mean, it's the same thing if you look at like a lot of music. I mean, how many times have you, you know, had people sit there and they're singing something along and they're singing along to it and then you're like, okay, stop for a second and listen to the lyrics of what you're saying. Yeah, do you even know what you're singing? It's like if you go back, there's a lot of 80s songs that are very problematic where you're like, wait a minute. Right. <laughs> it's like I've been listening to a sing this whole my whole life, but now that I've stopped for a second and listened, hmm, it's kind of hmm, problematic, but yeah. But that's kind of what Father Divine did. He got that whole idea of the rhythm, which a lot of people talk about came from, you know, we mentioned earlier that the slaves were only a, a generation back. Yes. That's how they communicated. That's how they talked. That's how they made it through. The day. That's how history. they made it through the day half the time. Yeah. It was just that singing and the cadence. So I'm, I'm sure he saw that from his parents and everything else and learned really quickly. You can get people with that cadence. And he just turned it into to his ministries. Yeah, and the big problem where uh, he basically broke off on his own was he was at a Baptist church, a guy named Samuel Morris. It was this church in, I think it was in Baltimore, where he was given a sermon. And then at the end, he raised his arms and he shouted, I am the eternal father. And they threw him out. And in yeah. fact, he was such a problem for these Baptist churches that they had him arrested. Yeah, but th that worked in his favor. Yes. That was, and so this is, I would say, phase two of the Father Divine plan. Yeah. He learned also very early that if he made outlandish statements, got arrested, and then made even more outlandish statements. He got sympathy. He became. He was seen as a martyr. He was playing, for lack of better terms, the race card. Mm -hmm. So he started becoming kind of a folk hero in the black community. He gained the attention of some high-powered lawyers who all of a sudden saddled up with him, and they never left him. And so this became, I would say, his game. Yeah. There was one time where he, and we'll get to how he got all of his money, but he bought, well, he would have his, quote, parishioners, because his name was never on anything. So he never bought anything. Right. So he would have them buy these houses. And this is kind of a funny story. So there were these two German families living next to each other. And they got into a feud because one of the German families actually changed their name yeah. to become, I guess, a little more Americanized and, and to distance themselves from the World War I. <laughs> In the feud, one of these German families decided to put their house up for sale. And on the sign, it said to Negro families, this is available. And that was unheard of at that time like they they were advertising for a black family to buy this place just to piss off the neighbors so yeah. he had his parishioners do it and they would throw huge parties there sometimes three thousand people would show up clog the neighborhood clean feed them all oh yeah big barbecues lots of loud music all night long of course, the neighbors complained and all the other neighbors complained because there were cars parked everywhere for blocks and blocks and blocks. Nobody could get in and out. The police showed up, gave him a warning. He refused. And so they arrested him on public nuisance. And it became headline news. This became headline news. And the judge gave him the full sentence. And I think it was, it was like 40 days. It, was, it really wasn't that much, but it was the fact that he said, yeah, you're a nuisance. And we are going to put you in jail, and, and that's, that's how it is. 
Now, at the same time, he would show up for his court dates and stuff with rolls of cash and just drop the bail money right there. In fact, uh, I'll get to another story in a moment. But anyway, here's the deal. This judge that sentenced him, three days after he sentenced him, he died. He mm-hmm. had like a heart attack or something. So the press all rushed to Father Divine in his jail cell, and he says, I hated to do it. I didn't want to do it, but I had to. He had to understand who he was dealing with. And that just, again, of course, the black community loved that. Mm-hmm. And it spread like wildfire. He just just kept elevating, elevating, elevating in this stature of fighting the man, fighting back, saying things he wasn't supposed to say, and being protected by these high-powered lawyers and he knew he was bulletproof. Yeah. And every time he went to jail and every time something like this happened, his flock would double, if oh, not triple. They would grow, yeah, leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds. Look, he was doing, well, I say he, because, but he was the figurehead of this thing. There were a lot of people around him who were actually doing the work. They would open up. And this was during the Depression when they, nobody could get a job, and especially in the African-American community. They, they were really struggling and suffering. And he would open up these what they call banquet rooms and feed them not just soup and sandwiches, huge meals. Everybody was welcome. They opened up a cafe, and they would charge hardly anything for a full meal. And so people were coming from all over the city. But everywhere, in all of these restaurants, in all of these places, there were signs and posters that says, Father Divine is God. And his big moniker was peace. Father Divine is peace. Father Divine is, thank you, Father. And they, people were wearing T-shirts. There were signs everywhere. People would, they had parades for him. And he was the Grand Marshal. And people were walking around with big signs that Father Divine is God and God is love and God is Father Divine. And it got really creepy because these, these people were basically slowly being brainwashed. So how did he get all of his money? Because he was broke. Well, really, I mean, up until his death, he was broke. Yes. He never, he never had money. He never did. And in fact, he claimed multiple times that he didn't benefit at all in any way, shape, or form from any of the income, which was an absolute lie. Absolute. He figured out also very early on to not put your name on anything. And he was very proud of the fact that they, quote, never took offerings. However, if you joined, I mean not just showed up, but you became one of the followers of this movement, this peace movement. You had to give everything to him. Same thing with Jim Jones. Same thing with the Rajneeshis. He was one of the first to do this. I'll just say in America, where if you joined, you had to hand everything over, all your earthly, worldly possessions, money, house, car, jewelry, everything. And his idea was, like in his theology, was that there was no afterlife. There is no heaven. That he was creating and bringing heaven to earth. He did in multiple places. Yeah, that's what he says. Yeah, because the houses that he would build later... And not the houses, but that like apartment buildings that that the movement would buy, they called them heavens. Because everyone could live there. It was supposed to be what heaven's supposed to be. There was no black, white, nothing. It was just everybody with people. Everybody could live here. Everybody could live there when they had these banquets. And that that was his big driving thing was food. And it's really Mm -hmm. weird because he was five foot two in good shape his whole life. He wasn't some fat roly poly guy, but he... He knew the way to get through to these people was to throw these massive banquets. And there's multiple film reels of these banquets with, I mean, it was like the way very rich people would throw a banquet. Yeah. Bands, they're all dressed up. Everybody's wearing expensive suits. They're singers. There's 
all the cooks and the chefs and the it, it's quite a sta- it's amazing actually it really is it would have been interesting to walk in on this yeah i think there's five followers or maybe seven period left at all i think so this is still a thing they do they have these banquets all the time the reason why there's not many left is because you are not supposed to have kids he didn't like kids because you weren't, it was supposed to be celibate. Yeah, you were, everyone was supposed to be celibate. You all had to have a new name. Everybody had to have a new name. And they were all names from his sermons. So you were like a uh, worshipful flower. You were, you know. Or there was something that sounded biblical. Yes, you know, mercy lamb. Like his wife was Penaniah, which sounds very biblical, but it's just weird. Yeah, I know. And so you had to, and you had to uh, forsake your family. You had to cut off all ties with them, and just give full devotion and allegiance, and free work, and all kind of everything you had basically to him. And he ran a, a huge Ponzi scheme. So he started a service where it was kind of like a temp service. So he would take all these men and all these women, and he would shop them out to businesses to you know to go clean homes to go to auto shops to do mechan- whatever they were good at and he would take and there's a dispute on this but it was at least 50% of their money had to go back to the church so he would send them out they would do their thing and when they came back they had to give 50% to the church or the follower, whatever it was, the their peace movement. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times, too, what it was, too, is the who they'd be working for were part of the church, too. So it was like, even though they were paying you, but then the money was going, it was like, it was basically a circle. They were paying themselves. Yes. And then, because uh, he was also, he was nonprofit. It was the International Peace mission movement it was the international peace mission and then they tacked on movement later but he would then go around town with suitcases full of cash because he did not believe in credit and he didn't believe in bills or any of this stuff so he would show up with literally suitcases full of cash and then have you know a couple of his top followers or they didn't really have titles like deacons or deaconesses there were really no ranks it, it just it was how you favored with him and you would show up and you would sign on to these properties and so technically it was yours but it wasn't yours at all yeah so like if brandon and i were in the cult and we showed up and i and i signed my name and brandon signed his name well, the money came from the church or from the organization. Our names just happened to be on it. But there were a lot of, <laughs> through the lawyers that followed him around, if Brandon and I ever broke away and said, no, no, this is our hotel, it was not. That's how it was set up. In fact, there were several followers who, when they started getting disillusioned, they broke away and they sued him to get their belongings and their money back and they won instead of paying them he left new york and fled to philadelphia yes so god and ran he would, and what he would do too which is just cracks me up at that time in new york it was illegal to present a you know somebody with a summons or anything like that, you know, to serve somebody on a Sunday. So the only time he would come into New York, he would drive in on Sunday to do sermons and then drive right back out so that they could never serve him because they weren't allowed to do it on a Sunday. Exactly. By 1934, he had branches in LA, Seattle, France, Switzerland, Canada, and Australia. Time magazine estimated he had nearly 2 million followers. Accor- but according to most, like I said earlier, it was more like the tens of thousands. And yeah. most of uh, all the others were like sympathizers and people who just showed up for the food. He hated politics. He never ran for office or anything. But politicians would constantly come to him. And this is another 
example of where Jim Jones learned from him. Yes. Because politicians constantly came to him begging for the votes of all of his followers. And this was another big controversy because at one point he said, okay, fine. I'm sure there were a lot of backroom deals that went on. Nobody knows for sure. But he sent all of his followers down to register to vote. And when they gave their name, which was their fake name, you know, the name that they had been given or chosen or whatever, the registrar said, yeah, you can't vote unless you have some sort of ID and you have an official name. Well, his lawyers took everybody to court and they won. And they were allowed to go in and basically give fake names and vote. And so now he had this huge following and they were mostly African-Americans. There were, there were some whites, but it was primarily African-Americans. And he had a power base now. And all of a sudden he is, he's gone from, you know, sharecropper kid wandering around to owning massive buildings, massive amount of houses, hotels, restaurants. Of course, he claims he didn't own any of them, but the movement owned them all. And he's the leader of this huge group, this massive voting block. And so you can see where Jim Jones learned this because Jim Jones did this very same thing. He did. I mean, even to the whole idea um, of predominantly, like, you know, black people, people of color, and doing like like we said, if you took the last ten years of Jim Jones out, most of what he did was actually really good for the wrong reasons. You know, you find out later when you really do research. But he he helped to de desegregate many places. Yeah, so but he learned it from Father Divine. Yeah, what Father Divine was doing in the thirties and the forties, Jim Jones replicated with the racial tensions in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where he did uh, amazing things where all of a sudden he'd walk in and say, hey, sit down with a bunch of, you know, people of color in the restaurant and say, we don't serve their kind. And he'd look and say, well, if you start, I will start getting a whole bunch of people and I'll get you all sorts of business. And Father Divine started that. Yeah. And Father Divine, he learned that from Father Divine. Father Divine would also at his banquets, he made sure that there were not groups of people like so you were assigned a seat and it was black, white, black, white, black, white, black, white, as, as much as he could. Yes. And you were not allowed to even mention skin color or that you were black and they were white. It was lighter skin, darker skin, human type thing. But they weren't even supposed to go there. And if you join, like if you were a member, a heavy duty member living with him, living in the commune or the the buildings or whatever, men and women were not to live together, period. They weren't even supposed to talk to one another unless it was in a business oriented, prearranged situation. They were not even to look at each other or acknowledge that they existed. On the what they called heaven, the, the hotels that they bought and people lived in, the men were on one floor, women were on another. They were not to mix. They were supposed to, like like we said, there was no kids because there was no sex. Supposedly. He was having lots. Supposedly, yeah. <laughs> he, he was having lots. Another thing he did that I thought was quite amazing, he bought a huge hotel on the coast. People were went apoplectic because all of a sudden, it, it, was, it was around these beaches where blacks were not allowed. And now all of a sudden they own this building and they're there, they're working there, they're living there and everything. And it was getting heated and he knew some trouble was coming. So he cut a deal with the U.S. Coast Guard that they could use this hotel as basically barracks. And they signed like, I think it was a two or a three year deal, paid him a bunch of money. But the only caveat that he had was that they had to allow blacks and whites to share rooms, be on the same floor, and basically have the same existence in the hotel as they should. Yeah. 
And the Coast Guard agreed, and it was really the first time the Coast Guard or any of the military services became fully integrated. And so you look at that in a, in a bubble, and you're like, that's really great that he would do this kind of stuff. But the problem is, is he was doing this to exploit his own cause. It, he mm -hmm. really could care less about it. was just good publicity. It brought in more money. It elevated his status. And he gained more and more power as this sort of God figure. And again, he claimed to be God. Yes. That, he, that God had shown back up as him. He came down. Took a, took a human body because he was bringing heaven down here. And he kept telling people, don't worry about what, there is no real heaven. I'm just up there alone. That's why I've come back down here because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide heaven for you on earth. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to feed you and I'm going to clothe you and I'm going to do all these things. There were a lot of people eating it up. Yeah. And it's very, it's one of those things where it, this is a tough one because kind of like Jim Jones and the fact that some of the stuff he did was very, very good. You know, in the desegregation, helping people and doing all that stuff. But then once you start seeing the motivation and why he did it and kind of how he did it, and you're like, oh, maybe not. Well, in 1934, he joined forces with and created an alliance with the Communist Party of America. The FBI was all over him. Also, he um, hooked up with this guy called John the Re uh, Revelator, a guy named John Hunt. He was a millionaire. And a disciple, he called himself John the Revelator. At one point, he kidnapped this 17-year-old uh, girl, took her back to California, and renamed her Virgin Mary. Oh, yeah, that guy. He announced, shockingly, that she would give birth to a new redeemer by, quote, immaculate conception in Hawaii when actually they were uh, having sex. No. And no, that can't be true. Yeah. Let's talk about his wife's for a moment here before we get into some of the other stuff, because this is another weird, very weird part of his story. It was only one wife. That's true. It was all Mother Divine. That's true. Mother Divine. There were a lot of rumors going around that was about to shake his movement to the foundation. And they were all about these young girls that he was attracting and all these single ladies that he was attracting mm -hmm. And there were basically people were saying, yeah, they're ha he's having a lot of sex with these girls because they were his personal assistants. They were his, I don't know, whatever, maids. They were his cooks. And they were all around him. Yes. And they were talking. So to sort of squash all of this and to get it under control, <laughs> he just up one day and declared that he was married to this lady who was twice his age, basically. Yeah. Nobody really knows much about her either. Nobody knows who where she came from. They don't really know who her parents were. She was just one of his followers, and her name he named her Panaya. Penaniah, I think is what it was. Penaniah. Yeah, he named her Penaniah. And I looked her up. I tried to do some deep dives on her, and... I looked a little into her and I had kind of the same issue I did with him. It was the, there's a lot of speculation on who she might have been. Right. And that's it. It's all speculation. The records were terrible, obviously. Yeah. And they believed that she was the daughter of probably some sharecroppers, some freed slaves, and wandered into his camp and was just like everybody else. And why he chose her, nobody knows. But they were adamant that they never consummated their marriage. No. And I believe it. I mean, all you got to do is look Welcome, at yeah. her. She sat there. She was basically just a stoic mother figure sitting next to him so that he could not be accused, I guess, mm -hmm. of flirting and having sex with all the younger girls. But if you look at him when they're sitting there together, he is... I don't know. I'm trying to think the best word. Like a dapper Dan. I mean, he is dressed very nice. Looks very good. Looks very, you know, 
dapper. I mean, I guess is the right word. Where and she is very much just looks like what you would think of a mom in the nineteen oh two. Oh yeah, absolutely. Dower, where mm-hmm. like you know, flowery ankle length dresses, mm-hmm. bun hair, like nothing attractive. Not to be no. cruel, but she was not attractive at all. No. And she may have been at one point, but at this point, and she didn't do anything to look attractive. No, she did nothing to herself. She did nothing to try and be attractive where he was dressed to look. He was wearing at the time, $500 suits, which was, that'd be like, I don't know, a thousand, several thousand dollar suits. Now he -hmm. had the finest of the finest limos. They had Cadillacs or, or whatever, whatever the top auto at the time was. He was rolling around in these things, and he had the best of the best and the top of everything. Yeah. Like I said, she was quite a bit older. They don't know how much older, because just like him, they're not sure exactly when and where she came from. I don't even think he knew. I don't think they ever talked. No. I've watched multiple clips of them at these banquets sitting around talking to other people and I never saw him acknowledge her, speak to her, hold her hand, to, you know, direct her like, Hey, let's go this way. Nothing. It's like she, no. she just was there. But if you were in the cult, you had to acknowledge her as mother divine. She was equivalent to him mm-hmm. and they waited on her hand and foot. And she was a, holy figure mm-hmm. also he was very famous for saying that neither of them would ever die yeah that they were going to be here forever because god had returned to earth and that was the whole thing and she did she died she was obviously a lot older than him she passed away people started questioning it and he said no she just uh you know she had to leave and it was her spirit is here and floating around and uh, like, like it was a lie. Basically he had to lie. But what's funny is when he does this, it was never this kind of thing. had never been mentioned before and was never mentioned again. It was this one and only time, a one time thing that's happened where all of a sudden her spirit was there and then poof, it's in someone new. Yeah. And then the rumor started swirling again. And there were a couple of books that were written by women who left, who talked about what was going on, who were blowing the lid off of this thing. There was a gal, there was a white gal who was, what was she, 20? I think she was 22. Well, she was 20 when she first went to Philadelphia. She actually heard about this whole thing when she was 15 in Vancouver, BC. Yeah. And that's the first time she heard him speak. And then when she was 20, she and a friend took a bus to Philadelphia and she became one of his quote secretaries. And now the story that they give is, is that he didn't really know who she was, that she was just part of the, you know, fast picture of all of his followers And he walked into the office one day. Oh, no, they were at a banquet one day. And she stood up and she said, I want to marry you because I know that you are God. And on April 29th, 1946, (laughs) they got married. So that was three years after the original Mother Divine had died. Yeah. Now... That's not the full story, though, because the full story is is that they didn't tell anybody. Father Divine and this gal from Canada. Edna Rose Richings. Yes. They got married, and he didn't want to tell anybody because he was afraid. Yeah. But as always happens, words started leaking out, and uh, I mean, she was what, 30 years younger than him by this point, or more? Yeah, or more. <laughs> and Because, yeah, nobody really knows how old he is or was at the time either. Yeah. 
But when it caught up to him, he basically stood up one day at one of these gatherings and said, yes, it's true, this is my wife, but it's not really who you think it is. This is Mother Divine reincarnated. Mm -hmm. Like the original Penaniah is now this gal. Mm -hmm. She was a trip. I've watched a lot of film clips of her. She was very weird. She was controlling. She was, for a lack of better terms, very bitchy to any. Like, I'm pretty sure she made sure that he wasn't messing around. I'll just put it that way. She was a hover wife. Ooh. There's a famous clip of him where he's sitting there, and I think it's a news reporter talking to her. Oh, no, they were doing a radio broadcast, and the reporter is asking her, you know, some questions, and then she says to him, because remember, the first wife never said a word, ever. Yeah. And she started talking for him, and then she turned to him and said, is there anything you would like to add or say to the radio audience? And he looked away and wouldn't say a word. He looked like a beat dog. It's very telling. It is. The article that I read, um, it, it cracked me up because it says he took a second wife, the light-complected Canadian follower. So, <laughs> like, light-complected. Yeah, he went from a, you know, a black lady that was in her probably 60s or 70s at that time. Oh, yeah. And went to a white 22-year-old Canadian. I mean, and she I threw guess. Her, she And she threw herself at him. This Canadian gal, she was a scammer just like he was. Yeah. She showed up. She knew exactly what she was doing. She had a mission in mind. She accomplished it because, and I'll tell you why we know this, because when Jim Jones showed up and had all these meetings with Father Divine, and he had several, don't be fooled, he had several. And he wanted to take over Father Divine's flock. And he and Father Divine were sort of in, I'll just say, like um, negotiations. Then Father Divine died before they could finalize anything. So Jim Jones then again showed up, and he was hanging out. And now he's sort of kind of in talks with Mother Divine, but she doesn't realize what he's getting at. And in a very famous moment of this story, at one of these banquets, Jim Jones stands up and says to Mother Divine, I am the reincarnation of Father Divine, and I am the head of this group. And she was having none of it. No. She got really pissed off, had him removed, kicked out, and it caused a big riff within the group. Because there were a lot of people who believed him. Who believed Jim Jones. I mean, she was able to do it. Why couldn't he? And he was God. He, If she could do it, he could definitely do it. <laughs> I know. The whole thing's crazy. No, it is. So then, what does Jim Jones do? He goes back to California. I think it was California. Gets a bus. Drives across country. Goes up to the front of the building. And gives a big sermon and says, I am Father Divine, I am God incarnate, I am you know, who I say I am, and you need to follow me, get on the bus if you're in. And a bunch of them did, and they all ended up in Guyana, and they all ended up dead. Yep. There were lots of problems, of, obviously, within the group as far as rape and stealing from the, the cult and everything. But I think, because I know we're getting towards the end here, and there's a lot more to this story, but what I think is most fascinating about this whole thing is the fact that I've, I've seen several professors give talks, and of course, this is I wasn't there. I've just watched the videotapes of this, where they talk about Father Divine was somewhere between, say, like Gandhi and Martin Luther King as the importance of what he did for the African-American community, race relations, and moving, moving the needle way forward in 
the American life because he went up against the KKK. He went up against mm-hmm. the city. He went up against the state. He went up against the government. And he was, in a lot of ways, a champion of civil rights. There's no doubt about it. No. But the reality of the situation is, and for and it is amazing the things that were accomplished but he wasn't doing it to accomplish the things for accomplishment's sake no not at all and that's what i find fascinating about this is that you have a guy who actually did and accomplished some unbelievable things in the face of all odds but he wasn't doing it for the people he wasn't doing it for the future he wasn't doing it to better people around him in fact a lot of the times when they would make these strides he would tighten the grip on his group and then for, like forbid them from going into the city or forbid them from going to that restaurant or forbid them from riding the bus or whatever it was that they were advancing once it was accomplished he would pull them back in. So it worked like in a broader scale for the people in the city or the people around. But his group, I think he he loved the attention. He loved scrapping in the legal courts. He loved being in the headlines. He loved being the hero. But he also realized that with each of these accomplishments, that meant more freedom for the people that he had under his control. Mm-hmm. He, he loved making it seem like he was smarter and better than everybody else. You know? Um, and like you said, he loved the the money. He loved the, the power that it gave him. He loved all of that, but he realized very quickly by winning, he was basically, his followers were getting more freedom and being able to walk away from it, where they wouldn't need him anymore. And currently, in real time, they still own this place called Woodmont Castle. Again, there's maybe six, between, I would say between five and seven followers left, period. Yeah. And they are building this library. They have, uh, it, it, I think this is weird too, they have this big tomb on site where his body is laid, but they don't believe he's there. They actually believe he is alive and walking around the property. Well, his spirit is. Right. And but he still lives there. Like they talk to him. They keep his room up. They have a seat at the table for him. They talk to this chair as if he's like, hey father, how are you today? It's great well, to be see rude you. to ignore him. It's very weird. The other thing that's weird is they have pretty much everything that he's ever said once he became Father Divine, whether it was on tape, reel-to-reel, on the radio, from the pulpit, things he wrote, things he said at the feast and the gatherings. and It's all archived. And they're having to sift through all this stuff and they're, they're setting up this library for future generations to come and learn the truth and everything. And it is, <laughs> it's crazy because like, even if he would say, I have to go to the bathroom, it's archived and that's the word from God. Well, yeah. Well, cause what a lot of people don't realize either too, is that the, the, those buildings that they had, you know, the heavens where everyone lived, they had huge loudspeakers that he would speak into. And if he wasn't there at that one, he would send tapes Yes, of him speaking, and they were supposed to play the tapes all the time. Just like Jim Jones. Yeah. Jim Jones did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Just rambling, Jim, rambling, rambling into a microphone yeah. constantly. He stole so much from Father Divine, where what's interesting, like we said, it's in all the Jim Jones stories, Father Divine's a blip, like a bloop. And you don't realize how much Jim Jones took and how much he copied and learned from Father Divine. 
Well, Jim Jones at one point said, I am creator of the peace mission. I am the creator of that because this is when he's saying he's God. Mm -hmm. He said, there wasn't any God till I came along. There was nobody to help the young people. Your God of religions and Bibles, the babies are going to bed hungry. Black people have been treated like dogs just because of the color of their skin. Jews were murdered. They were supposed to be the chosen people of God. The so-called sky God, there was no sky God. I am an earth God. Though child, I'm very much alive. And these were all almost direct quotes stolen from Father Divine. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, we all know about Jim Jones because there was way more media and because of obviously the suicide and the deaths and everything. But the reality is, is that the doctrine, the practices, the cultist behavior, the changing of the names, the giving all your possessions and on and on and on, even you know, the trying to help the races and get along and all of this, all of it was a blueprint copied from this Father Divine. Yes. And to me, Very I much. find it amazing that in U.S. history, in religious history, religious history of America, Father Divine has completely disappeared. Yes. Because you, I mean, most people have ever have heard of Oral Roberts. They've heard of Billy Graham. They've heard of Jim Jones. They've heard of David Koresh. I mean, we could go down and some, yes, solid Christians. They were, you know, Billy Graham, solid guy. Everybody's heard of him. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, everybody's heard of Jim Jones because of the tragedy and everything. Father Divine was probably bigger, way bigger than most of these. Just go look up old newspaper articles. Just type him in. He had radio programs. He was on TV. He got interviewed all the time. There were parades to him. People wore shirts. They made signs. They marched. And they pe- these people truly believed he was God. And that blows my mind. Yeah. And then they've completely eliminated him from history. And like so, Mother Divine, the second Mother Divine, she she died 2017. She was 91. It's really interesting to watch her body language as well, even as she got older, and the movement dwindled, dwindled, dwindled. Because like I said, this manor, this estate that they have is huge. It's a massive castle. They have swimming pools. It's manicured lawn, and nobody seems to know where the money comes from. I mean, my guess is they sold off all their property as sitting in some trust somewhere, and nobody knows where it's going to go either when all of these people finally die off. Well, one thing I heard was the property that they're on was actually one of one of the you know members of the church. It was a family property, and his family had money. And that's at least how they got the property. He gave the property to the... Well, actually, he might actually, I think, still even own it. But he gave it or had the property, let them, you know, live there on the property. But the money, they figure, is either from him or just from donations over the years that they've had the money and they just, you know, still living off of it. Yeah, it's very weird because it's if you watch this documentary and you look up this Woodmont estate yeah, in uh, Pennsylvania, it's, it is perfection. It's like a huge English manor. The lawn's manicured. They, they are constantly working on it. And these people live there for free, obviously. Cause, but again, because they didn't have kids, <laughs> they're eventually going to just die out. Because I think the last, quote, gathering or the feast that I saw, there were maybe seven people there. And this was filmed before Mother Divine died. And they were all in their 70s and 80s. Yeah. So it's obviously... Not it's not getting any younger. Yeah, it's obviously not a cult that is, I would say, dangerous in any way that they might prey on you or you might fall into them or something. You would have to really seek them out. And they're super paranoid, very paranoid. Mm-hmm about anybody who's looking to join them or come out uh, and uh, 
do interviews. They've banned several people from being interviewed with them because if you don't, in your presentation, if you go interview them or you go document them or take photos or anything, and you don't adhere to the fact that Father Divine was God, they don't want to talk to you. So a lot of people say, oh, yeah, Father Divine was God. And then the story comes out and they get really mad and they basically ban you. Yeah. To me, I think the lesson is, and I guess the storyline is, is that a lot of people think cults really sort of came into being in the 60s and the 70s. Because that's what we hear about Manson. We hear about. Jones, we hear about Koresh, we hear about what was that Father David Moses and the Children of God and all that stuff because a lot of that stuff started in the 60s. But this has been going on for a long time here in America. Mm-hmm. It just shows the vulnerability of people who are non-critical thinkers and people who are willing to just give themselves up to some other individual and be exploited. Yeah. Not question, change your name. You've been told to you know, not associate with your family and so forth. And there's horrific stories of the kids. So when a family would join, the mom and dad would have to live you know, like on these separate floors and all the kids went to some other place and they weren't supposed to interact with them. They were supposed to be very cold towards them. And these kids that were being raised by this Father Divine community had miserable lives. Yes, miserable. A lot of them killed themselves. A lot of them became homeless and, and don't know who their family is. They don't even know who their brothers or sisters are because they were all separated. And nobody talks about that side of things. No, and that was the hard part. Because most things I found with like with a lot of things, they just talk about the amazing things that he did and kind of glossed over everything else. He hated kids. Yeah, hated them. Did nothing for them. They were little robots. They were not to have emotions or do anything and it's very sad very very sad right i think the whole thing is sad and so as you go through life and you run across situations that don't feel right things that don't add up people who are asking way too much of you and making wild claims and so forth you have to stop and pause don't get caught up in the moment don't get caught up in the music the cadence the message and everything be very discerning and test everything. Think through it. And I'm a Christian. I'm talking about churches. I'm talking about these you know, modern day movements. I'm talking about people who are all of a sudden super popular, whether it be their music or their services or whatever, because it happens everywhere. It does. And when you talk in that cadence and do it the right way, it's almost hypnotizing. Oh, Absolutely. 100%, which is why we don't do that. <laughs> no. But anyway, no. Uh, that, so that's basically the story of Father Divine. It goes way deeper. If you want to go down that rabbit hole, like I said, I highly recommend the documentary on him. It's eye-opening. Go back into old articles. The New York Times wrote a lot about him because he was living there. Philadelphia, the Inquirer, talks a lot about him in the 30s and the 40s and even into the 50s. And then there's several books by ex-members, who, primarily women, who came out and spilled the beans on just what a horn dog he was. And Oh, yeah, I, forgot, I didn't even mention all the forced abortions that was – completely illegal at the time and so it is uh it's a fascinating tale and it's probably kind of unusual for one of our shows but i think it's important that we look at some of these figures and we realize that i mean he was trying to create sort of a perfect little world he was very much so. and it's it's impossible you can't do it no you can't I mean, he wanted his own perfect little world, but I think in a lot of ways, too, it was he understood that if you could get people to believe that you've given them that perfect world, that you've delivered 
heaven on earth that they will follow him they will give him what he needs to be comfortable which was money big cars and fame. power fame yes and all of that which he denied all of them he denied them their real name. He did not deny them their families. He took their money, took their wealth, took everything. Which exactly what Jim Jones did. Dave Koresh. We can go down the list of the cult leaders. Children of God did that. That came after him. That pretty much just followed the, the template that he followed. Yeah, and a lot of his philosophy, you know, this thinking it into being and speaking it into being and being positive and passing the peace and sharing the peace and all the stuff that a lot of that still is pervasive to this day. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things, like you said, it it comes in cycles because I'm sure it'd come up before he said it. Oh yes, absolutely. It comes in cycles and then it just takes someone who has the, the wherewithal and the brains to say, okay, Hey, I can turn this into something. He had the charisma. He was kind of he was basically psychotic. He had no conscience. Mm-hmm. He was narcissistic. It was all about him. But the acting job that he did, pretending that it was for everybody else, is was brilliant. Actually, oh, it was awesome. You know, he deserves multiple Oscars. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for this week. I'm going to be with you on the midweek, uh, Wednesday, and mm-hmm. looking forward to that. And in the meantime, I'm Big D. And I'm Brandon. We're out of here. See you later.